Greetings, Sagittalians. Welcome back to another episode of the Declassified Discussions. Today, we are joined by the founder director of SasquatchDetective.com, a no-nonsense inquiry to the Sasquatch Bigfoot mystery. He's also the host of Squatch Detective Radio and has appeared on programs on the History Channel and Nat Geo. Also well-known for his films, American Sasquatch Hunters, I've Seen Bigfoot, Mountain Devil 2, The Search for Jan Clement, as well as his newest On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Journey. Hushlings, please welcome Steve Coles. Hello, everybody. Hello, Steve. Thanks for coming on. Oh, anytime, anytime. Let's start off. We I know we gave kind of the resume here, but let everybody know who isn't familiar with your work, what you're all about. Like, what do you do when you get out there and you're doing your investigations and you're doing your research? What's that process like? Well, uh, I am a, uh, by trade, I'm a professional investigator. Uh, I've been an investigator since, a uh, professional investigator since 1988. I'm a trained forensic interviewer. Um I'm also a, a, uh, a trained in neurolinguistics and body language interpretation. And uh, so that's that part. Throughout my Sasquatch uh, research, which I started 25 years ago, uh, I've had to develop tracking skills and learn about a lot of other different types of sciences, ecology, biology, anthropology. You know, it's it's a big mishmash of everything. Primatology as well. Um and uh, what I did was uh, I started SquatchDetective.com in 2006, uh, January 1. Um, and I was actually ready to go, I think, like December of 2005, but we didn't launch until. Um, and what I wanted to do was set up a, a uh, like like I said, a no-nonsense. Uh, we're going to take a realistic approach, a, an investigator, investigative approach to it, and uh, let the truth come out about everything about the mystery, be it for the, for, for or against, it does not matter. Um, nine months later, we started Squatch Detective Radio. Uh, now it's SquatchDTV.com. And uh, we, we've gone to YouTube now and we, we uh, podcast through StreamYard. Um, but uh, my, my research uh, methodology really got refined in 2008 uh, when I developed a process of when I receive a report, uh, you know, you get, usually you get the initial written one, somebody will write in or somebody will say, Hey, this, uh, I'll do a phone interview with them, try to record it, get their permission to record it. Then I'll do a face-to-face interview with them again, recording it either visually or audibly. And if everything matches up pretty well and it seems in line, then we move on with the, the field investigation, collecting any evidence, uh, and, and if need be surveillance of the area. And that's generally the, the process I follow. It's pretty cool that you have that background of professional investigation or being a private investigator and using those methods and techniques and bringing it into the world of Bigfoot and cryptids and things that are unknown. How exactly did you make that jump from like being a professional investigator to professionally investigating Sasquatch? I, I still work for a living. So, uh, you know, as we all do. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, 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 I mean, every investigation, uh, investigation principles are always the same. You know, when we, here's a report of, you know, instead of a crime or, you know, or an incident or an accident, here is the sighting report. 
So then you have to break it down. Well, what's the first thing you do when you uh, start an investigation? You collect information. You do information collection, which is basically them telling you the who, what, when, there, where, and why. And then you start the second part, which is victimology. And that is where you kind of switch that interview a little bit up and start asking them, you know, the pertinent questions. Well, uh, what were your thoughts about Bigfoot before this happened? Um have you watched any uh, programs on TV? Have you watched any internet? Because some of that can influence, you know, uh, they may misidentify something and some of that can influence, uh, you know, if, if they're into that Bigfoot thing and they, some of that can influence what they actually saw or they thought they saw. So you got to consider all that, you know, but there's other things too that people don't think about like the psychological reasons why people do things. Um, you know, have you, have you had a divorce lately? Uh, have you had a death in the family lately? You know, what is your living status? Do you live alone? Do you live with parents? Do you live taking care of an elder? Do you, or sometimes it's an elder taking care of an elder and all of these things can line up to a psychological makeup of a person. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the most interesting uh, cases I ever had was this gentleman, uh, in Schoharie County, New York, who, you know, was telling me in very detail of, and he was like, well, I saw this Bigfoot. I, I was out having a picnic in the field and I, I saw this Bigfoot standing in the grass. Well, how tall was the grass? Oh, the grass was about, you know, about six to eight inches of tall grass, you know, it was all right. And I'm, I'm asking, so what the face look like, what the body look like? And then I purposely baited this one. What did the feet look like? And he's telling me what the feet look like. Well, standing in grass, how could he have? So then I started asking about his background. It turns out he lives by himself, recently divorced, lonely as anything, in the middle of, you know, nowhere. Schoharie County is a, a rural community. He doesn't have a job. So he's, he, you know, he's got no interaction with people. So it's, it's leading up to this beautiful psychological makeup of, you know, he just wants to belong to something or just wants to feel important or whatever, or just even the communication between myself and himself. So, okay. I thank him for the thing. And of course I don't do any follow-up on it. When I realize it's probably, it's not likely a real encounter because there was just far too much detail, just far too much detail. And when that whole baiting him with the feet thing that, you know, I'm like, okay, he, he's just making this up on the fly. I wait about, Six or seven months, I get another phone call from, I just saw another one. Here we go. Uh, tell me about it. Well, I was on, I, I was on a Greyhound bus coming into town and, uh, you know, I, I saw it standing in the field and I, I didn't tell anybody else and nobody else on the bus saw that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and uh, I said, so how long was your sighting? And he goes, oh, it was about a minute. How fast was the bus going? Oh, about 35 miles an hour. You know, you drive by something at 35 miles an hour, you're, you're not going to be fixated on one point for a minute it's unless a it's, yeah. yeah, unless it's, you know, distance out. So, you know, again, it, it, it was nothing, it was nothing malicious. I think, I think it was just a guy being lonely, wanting to feel important or interject. And that's one of the psychological profiles of hoaxers. You have the psychological needy hoaxers that will say they've had this encounter and, you know, that'll be that. Yeah. I like how you kind of do the psych out to try to suss out anything that might be going on with their story and pointing out just the psychological things that may be going on in a person's life, but also any pop culture or movies or TV shows that they have watched. And I think we kind of touched on that when we were talking about Betty and Barney Hill, 
you know, UFO in, up in New Hampshire and how Betty Hill had watched a, you know, an alien invasion movie the week before and she had watched it over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden they had these UFO right. experiences. So it does play a major part in what people claim to see or what people imagine that they see. I can only imagine the many different stories that a lot of researchers have come across with a lot of witnesses. That, the sad thing is they, they may come across some, some uh, people like that would come across some researchers that would fully accept their, their story and, and not even question it. But my job is as an investigator to get to the truth of the matter. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, uh, you know, sometimes that causes a little friction in the community with me because uh, there is a particular sect of the community that they want everything to be, huh. oh, everything is Bigfoot. It's not that way, you know, yeah. and, and that's unfortunate. But it is what it is, and uh, that's why I always put, you know, a very solid boots-on-the-ground uh, mentality forward. Uh, you know, you, you got to do, you know, there's so many videos that come out on TikTok and YouTube and now Facebook shorts and stuff like that. And there's no story behind it. And I've always said without a story behind anything, any piece of evidence, there's no evidence. You know, I'm sorry. Oh, these two guys, you know, uh, coming back from a hunting trip, film this. Well, that's not, uh, that's not a story. That's just a byline. And, you know, well, who are these guys? Where were they coming from? Where were they going to? You know, what were they hunting for? You know, because all those questions are pertinent. Like even a simple roadside crossing of a Bigfoot, you see, you know, how many times people say, oh, I'm driving down this interstate or that interstate. And I saw one either I'm walking on the side of the road or crossing the road. You know, I get into, well, okay, uh, wh where were you coming from? Well, I was coming from, you know, X. Okay. What time did you leave X? Okay. What time was your sighting? And now I can look at X and look at their sighting and does that timeline match? And that's another thing. And that's something hoaxers don't think about. You know, they don't really, because they, they haven't actually drove the drive. So they'll make up the time. And then you're like, wow, that's like seven minutes, eight minutes off. That can't be. Uh, did you stop anywhere on the, oh no, I didn't stop anywhere. Mm -hmm, okay. And then you can kind of tell what this is, is, you know, horse manure, you know, and of course you want to go, where were you going to? Then there's the use of what I call secondary witnesses. For example, you know, say uh, Dave is driving down the road and uh, he sees the Bigfoot cross the road. Now, I can talk to Dave and I'll go, Dave, what did you do? Well, I went home and I, and I told my significant other, wow, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. Can I talk to your significant other? Because that person becomes a secondary witness. And if, the sec and if they have some reservation about that, or the, the secondary witness's story doesn't coalesce with the first story, which is pretty easy to, to get. If it doesn't, um, then you realize you're being hoaxed again. So there's, but if everything does coalesce, then you have a rock solid, a backed up story of the event. And that lends to the credibility of a sighting. So if, if witnesses get, you know, gnarly about, well, you know, I, listen, this is not doubting your story. This is, going to do one of two things. It's either going to tear your story apart or it's going to make your story rock solid. And I'd like to think it's going to make it rock solid. And usually they'll go, okay, you can talk to them. You know, so there, there's ways of dealing with objections to, you know, deep dives into a person's background or their story. Have you had an experience yourself that really got you to 
get into this subject because Bigfoot is such a, I guess, a taboo thing for most people. And one of the biggest things I have is if there's so many sightings, whether they're hoaxes and some of them may be, like you said, going through some traumatic point in their life and they're seeing something. When you were explaining everything you were saying, I was trying to think to myself of the UFO sighting I saw years ago, over 10 years ago. And I'm like, and I still question myself on it. Sure. But I have a secondary witness that was in the car with me. And that's a good thing that you're questioning yourself. Yeah. That that just shows your objectivity to it. Um, And and yes, there is stuff that that regresses. In fact, I'm I'm in the process of writing my fourth book called uh, The Psychology of Bigfoot. And there is a certain number of witnesses that go through PTSD. And they may have post-traumatic regression as well. Um, that's why the Bigfoot may disappear suddenly, or that's why Bigfoot may turn into an orb or something. Because number one, if it's not in your belief system, your your eye sends signals to the brain. Your brain has to interpret what it's looking at. Like I can look at you guys. I'm seeing another Homo sapien in front of me. But when you're in the woods and you this is this is not a concept in your mind, and all of a sudden you're you know you're ten feet away from this seven foot hairy being, you're trying to figure out what the hell is it I'm looking at. So that causes a pause in the mind. And in fact, there's cases of active shoot, you know, active shootings where people have that moment of, I, I don't know what's going on. I, it sounds like a firecracker, but you know, they know it's a gunshot, but they're, they're trying to rationalize it in their mind. Um, so you have that regression sometimes like a, the, the same kind of traumatic regression that, that protects that person that, that's driving in a car and boom, they get hit. They, they get knocked on the head or whatever. And then they come out of the coma and they don't remember the accidents because the body protects itself from that moment of trauma. Um, so yeah, I think it does happen with, with the Bigfoot, you know, uh, Bigfoot sightings occasionally, but you asked me, you know, what, you know, how I, I transcended this or why I got into this. It's because I'm an investigator. And a friend of mine said, hey, I got this book back in 98. I got this book and it was actually written in 92. He says it's about Bigfoot sightings in Whitehall, New York and in Kittenhook, New York. And I was kind of like at that time, I was living right in between the two areas. I got an hour to the south of me, Kinderhook. I got an hour and a half to the north of me, Whitehall. Now I live 30 minutes away from Whitehall. But I said, well, you know what? I used to be a believer as a kid, but I kind of lost it when I became a teenager. I was you know, more interested in cars and girls and all that fun stuff. And I was like, I bet you this is going to be a bunch of bunk, but it sure be kind of, it would be fun to, to kind of try to find out. And then I started speaking to witnesses and I spoke to police officers. I spoke to a firefighter or two that, that have had sightings. I, I spoke to two firefighters who had a sighting one cross across their fire truck on interstate in the, uh, 88 while they were going to a fire call. Um, and it got to the point where the chief didn't want them talking about it anymore. Cause that was back in, in I think 2002, 2001, which was still a taboo subject. That's kind of been brought out a little bit, a little more mainstream now that you had shows like finding Bigfoot and all the other, you know, paranormal shows and props off to the ghost hunter guys, because they're the ones who really started bringing these taboo subjects to the forefront of the things. Um, but uh, uh, in 2003, I talked to this one uh, and uh, gentleman who had this sighting at his house and there was a line of tracks and whatever. And um, he was a, a former Marine, a Vietnam, a Vietnam vet, served two tours in Vietnam, was a, a truck driver by trade, tough guy, big six foot two, you know, 
built guy, older, lived on this property for 15 years. But as he's recalling this story, I'm watching the hair stand up to, uh, on his arm. I'm hearing him shallow breathing. He's reliving this event. And it scared him. And to see a former Marine who served in Vietnam be scared. Well, I'm thinking, you know, and seeing those physical reactions and listening to the neurolinguistics. And I'm like, you can't fake that. He saw something that scared the daylights out of him. And that to me was like, maybe there is something to this after all. And then it was in 2011 when I had my first sighting up in an area that I was brought up into in Washington County that had a kind of a really aggressive type of, of, of encounter. A uh, man and his wife go into the woods, uh, into this particular thing. They go off trail about a, a quarter of a mile and something starts to scream at them. And this guy had been an outdoors guy all his life, been up in that area all his life, has encountered even bear up there. He goes, I, I know the sounds of this, this forest. And this was, this thing was so loud at me, I could feel it in my chest. And that's a, a very common descriptor that I get of, you know, people that have these audible encounters. And uh, again, as an investigator, that's what you're looking for is, is commonality, uh, modus operandi and commonality and stuff. So it, it was kind of lining up. So him and his wife decided to leave and whatever was screaming at them, continued to scream at them several more times. But he could see it moving from tree to tree out of the corner of his eye. You could see this massive shadow just keep shadowing them until they exited to a certain point. So to me, you know, in a primate behavior model, <clears throat> that aggressive behavior means territory. So I set up uh, and started researching this particular area very close by without kind of trying to be invasive and encroach their territory, but just enough outside to get their curiosity going about, you know, this hairless guy over here. Well, you know, compared to them, I'm hairless. Um, so in, uh, a after being there for 11 years, uh, I had, a, and by that time I I've developed a team and uh, my team consists of a lot of, uh, uh, former law enforcement or law enforcement and some other, uh, you know, mishmash of people. And we had the teams out <coughs> and about, you know, nine 30 or so after a couple hours being out, we were hearing things moving around, but really nothing definitive. I get all the teams back into the camp. We have a fire going. We start, you know, okay, let's break out. Let's eat. Let's take our break. Let's eat. Let's debrief real quick. We do, and we're eating, and now we're kind of chuckling a little bit. And, you know, uh, you know, we, we you know, our, my first, my motto on my team, the first thing is to have fun. That's rule number one, have fun, because if you're not having fun, you're not going to get the work done you need to get done. So I go out very quietly, uh, not intentionally. I just kind of plop out, but I, I kind of walk quietly anyway. And I walked out to my vehicle, which is on this dirt road right near the camp. And I open up car door, grabbed some batteries because my headlamp was going dim, throw them in my pocket, close the door, light up a cigarette. And I take my light, shine it downhill, which is the north side of the road, which is up until that time, which is a lot of activity was going on down there. I spin around and shine it up uphill, the south side of the road and standing there next to the utility pole, obviously watching our campfire and is this eight foot silhouetted large lanky long-haired creature with big massive red reddish orange dark deep orange glowing you know eyes that were reflecting back at me like it had a tapetum lucidum and those eyes were blinking as they're watching me and i just froze and it froze and i was like i know if i move it's going to just 
you know, tootle on off. And people ask me, was I scared? No, I was in awe and I was kind of shocked. Um, and I kind of shook the light a little bit after a period of time and it just turned and it walked into the wood line. So I get my first operations team out. They start looking around my, uh, my ops team, uh, my ops team one had, uh, OP one actually had a videographer with him. And so he's videotaping me like within three minutes of me having my sighting, you know, and that was, that was awesome getting that. And they eventually, uh, him and the, uh, former Marine sniper that I had on my team, they end up going up the road a little bit and they find the scuff where it had stepped into the wood line. And while they're doing that, you can hear the radio cheeping and, uh, you know, base camp to Steve, uh, be advised. We're getting a lot of, of, uh, noise and movement to the Southwest of our camp. And that's the direction it walked off into was the Southwest of the camp. So what more can you ask for? Except a year later, almost to the day, I was up with uh, a couple of researchers from Ohio and a researcher from Georgia, and we were shooting uh, for Nat Geo uh, Paranatural. And the, the first night they had come up, done some interviews because we were beat. We were at Chautauqua Lake Bigfoot Conference and met Bob Gimlin, and we had drove back from that area. So we, we were on the road all day, set up camp. It was raining and blustery and miserable that time. Got a lot of birch logs because birch burns in. Uh, you know, even wet virtual burn because of the, the skin in it. And I know slick as, yep, I know. <laughs> um, the oils in it will burn even wet. Once it gets to that heat, it goes up like gasoline. So we've been collecting a lot of birch. Uh, Nat Geo comes in, does just some preliminary interviews because we said we're not going out tonight. We're going to be, we're going to be exhausted. So we're going to sleep in tomorrow. Guys show up after lunch and we'll, we'll tape all day, all night. We don't care. So they leave after doing some, some cursory interviews and one by one, we all go to bed. Now, Jeff, who was the Georgia researcher left his pillow and blanket in his car, in his Jeep, because he wasn't sure brand new tent. He wasn't sure if it was going to leak or not with the rain. And so I'm going to go out there and grab my pillow and blanket. Now I'm going to go to bed. And that was probably about 11 o'clock or so at night. And off he goes into his tent. And then eventually we all start dropping off. And me and Wayne, one of the Ohio guys, we were the last to, he heads for his tent, I head for mine. So what happens in the course of the night? Well, of course, this guy, uh, it's time to use a tree. Wake up, oh, got to use a tree. I unzip my tent and I, I step out of my tent and I look over towards the road. Now, mind you, it was overcast, but there was a full moon. So it kind of gave everything like a nightlight type of, of look where we were. So it wasn't like bright as a full moon, but it wasn't dull. And of course, it's October. Leaves are all dropped. So you, you can see right to the road. And as I look out of my tent, climbing out, there is this five and a half foot, long haired, reddish brown one. And it sees me and it just books. Gone books off into the woods. And my first reaction is like, nah, I, I couldn't have seen that. I, I just couldn't have seen it. I must be really freaking tired. I, I, I just, you know, very, very vivid. I mean, it wasn't like I was dreaming. Um, so the next morning uh, I get woken up by the guy from Georgia. He's like, Steve, come here, get a look at this. I went to put my pillow and blanket back and look what's behind my Jeep. 
and, and right behind his Jeep, he would have tripped over it the night before, was this birch log. And I said, well, uh, I didn't want to say nothing, but uh, I believe I saw a five and a half foot one yesterday. So that kind of prompted the Ohio researchers to start, you know, looking through the, the, the area where I had seen it. And they found a nine inch track, which they cast. And uh, so it's like, this is too weird. And then Jeff went on his own walkabout on the la- one of the last days we were there when it was actually sunny. <laughs> And uh, something had, uh, he had gotten into a, a thicket in something behind another thicket. He couldn't quite see it, was sitting there grunt, growling and grunting at him. This five and a half foot one that, that you saw getting out of your tent, mm-hmm. did it share that similarity in the eyes as your first sighting? I did not see. Well, number one, I wasn't shining a light on it. I got you. So okay, there was yeah, that really makes sense. No, yeah, there was nothing really to reflect off it. Um, and I really didn't get any facial features. Actually, I just got more of a profile of it taken off because I think what happened was we were all quiet sleeping and it was kind of kind of creeping in, being being that curious creature again, looking. And then uh, I just, I startled it and it, it started to run. By the time I looked out, it was in a run already. So it was probably booking it. Um but very clearly, I could see the arms and, and the legs of it and the, and the long hair on it. And it was reddish brown. It was, you know, or brown. I mean, uh, uh, but it was definitely not black. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other one looked black. But but then again, the other one was about 100, 115, 125 feet away in, the, in a light being shined at it from a distance. So you got a good silhouette of it. But, um, you know, this was, uh, you know, just no light at all. Just looking at like. Oh, because it was probably within 50 feet of me. So getting a little bit more into just strictly the appearance of what you saw and what many other people have witnessed just between those two, obviously there's differences and I'm sure you're well aware, like depending on where you are in the States or in the world, there's different descriptions for what these creatures look like. Now, what would you attribute that to? Is it strictly regional or male versus female, young versus old, or is there like more to that? Well, I think uh, male versus female has something to do with it. I mean, look at the difference between a silverback gorilla and a female gorilla. Big differences there. Uh, Even between men and women, homo sapiens, we are very dimorphic. And then other sizes and stuff, they do have some regional Bergman's role which is, you know, where we get different sizes because of different, you know, zones like food. Like usually the, the warmer it gets, the smaller you get. Uh, and the colder you get, the bigger you get. So that may explain why the skunk apes uh, that are seen in Florida, what they call a skunk ape, it's just a Bigfoot, but why it may be a little smaller in uh, uh, in size and in, in, in girth than say a, a Sasquatch scene in New York or Minnesota or Washington state because of the, the heat difference. Um, you, you look in not only that, but then there's also food differences too, nutritional differences. A lot of people don't know that the average South Korean is five foot nine. The average North Korean is five foot seven. And the, the difference in height is because of the nutrition that you know, the South Koreans get versus the lack of nutrition the North Koreans get. That makes sense. I saw that you did some work with Small Town Monsters, Paul Bartholomew, that whole crew, and you guys did a few things. Can you tell us about some of the things that you ran into when you were working with those guys? 
Well, not much. I mean, actually, it was quite quiet. It's funny. Uh, it does get uh, quite quiet a lot when you have a lot of film crews out there um, because there is this hub of activity that's buzzing about. And, of course, somebody's got to shine a light somewhere. So a lot of times when we're on our missions, we're either on red light or dark unless we're in debris or at our campsite um, and not really paying much attention to the perimeter. Um, but there have been times uh, when I did the, the most active time I, I think ever was when in 2008, when we did the monster quest uh, with the history channel up there, that was the most uh, busiest time we had had a researcher that had gotten a pine cone thrown at him. And, the, or, and the strange thing was, is that there was no pine trees in the area. And uh, the, uh, we had gotten a vocalization, a howl back from a call we had done. Um, uh, other than that, they kind of tend to be very shy when, the, when when there's a lot of camera people around or there's equipment and lights and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Seth is a great guy. I first met Paul in, in 2003 when we both appeared on a, a morning uh, TV segment. And Paul was one of the authors of that book that I talked about in the very beginning. And uh, I've met three of the uh, three of the four authors of that book now. And I'm one of the few people that has that book signed by three of the four, which is really cool. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, Paul isn't uh, necessarily a very active field researcher. He'll go look for evidence, but he's more, you know, he's kind of the documentarian guy. He was trained by uh, Dr. Warren Cook, as was my, my other mentor, Bill Brand, um, and another author of Monsters of the Northwoods. They were both kind of under Dr. Warren Cook, uh, anthropologist from uh, Castleton State University at the time. And, uh, you know, I had, I had met Seth, uh, I think, at the Pennsylvania Bigfoot uh, Camping Adventure, uh, which is down in um, Fayette County, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, we, we had gotten connected. He had done the Beast of Whitehall. Then we had gotten connected for, uh, you know, uh, on, the, on the trail. And then, again, I, I got connected with another one of his uh, folks, uh, Alex Petikoff, when we did Beyond the Trail. And uh, that that was actually more, uh, I mean, when we were with Seth and doing the filming and that, we were just going to a lot of locations doing interviews for, you know, what happened here, what happened here, what happened there. We didn't really go out in the woods too much uh, and kind of surveil. But uh, when Alex was up, uh, we did go out uh, for a little bit for the Beyond the Trail episode. And uh, we had caught something rather large and significant on the thermal. Oh, well, we couldn't really make it out. We started going toward, going toward, running after it, and it was running away from us. And then all of a sudden, we looked, kind of looks like a bear. <laughs> we were chasing a bear, and the bear was like, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> um, so that's what ended up happening there. But, um, but yeah, it's been, uh, the area has been relatively quiet uh, for the last several years, and I think a lot of it had to do with COVID. Because uh, prior to COVID, that area would get, you know, I would say on a scale of one to 10, 10 being a ton of use and one being a very little use, uh, use, it was maybe about a four, maybe a five or a six during the summertime, maybe for one event during the year, maybe a 10, but that only lasts for a weekend. And then it's back down to the three and four. Well, when COVID hit, and I remember it was May before uh, Memorial Day, uh, which usually it picks up right after Memorial Day. We went up 
uh, I went up to scout with my wife um, just to take a look during COVID. Let's get out. Let's go up to the mountain. And as we're pulling up, and mind you, up until that point in my entire life, I had seen one park ranger, one state forest ranger in the last uh, 19, 20 years of going up there. And uh, that, that ranger actually happened to show up the morning we were shooting with Nat Geo in his class A uniform, which was, yeah, I know what was going on. But he was a real nice guy and, and really great. Gave us a permit, made sure just in case we got over our 10 count on the property. He was really cool. Yeah, I'm going to write you out. I'm going to get you a permit anyway, just in case. So nobody gives you any crap. You know, real, real good guy. And the Rangers are really good like that. And much to much to his credit, my my son is also a New York State Forest Ranger now. So that's awesome. We go up there and during the COVID day, and during the COVID, uh, late, you know, I was laid off. My wife was off. She was a nurse, so she kept working. And uh, we get up there, and I see two Forest Rangers and cars everywhere. And I'm like, well, this changes the game quite a bit. Because now there's just people camping out there all the time because they got nothing better to do. And, um, you know, if you look at stores that have done really well uh, during that whole COVID time, it was all the outdoor gear was going. People were sick of being indoor. So they were reconnecting with the outdoor, which was at least one good thing COVID did was kind of reconnected people with nature and reconnected them with, you know, instead of sitting in front of, a, you know, the boob tube all day. Well, I, I had my fair Xbox days, too. <laughs> um, but, um, but, uh, since then it's really not been the same. So it's been a little quieter. Um, <clears throat> so I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of hoping that this year it kind of reverses itself a little bit. I was up there, uh, just about, I want to say within the last four or five days during the day and it was very quiet. And it was daytime and nobody was around and it was a weekday and I'm going and I, I just kind of got that old feeling back that I was getting back in, 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 you know, the mid 2000s, you know, to 2010, you know, through 2013, um, like, Hmm. And I'm hearing things, very subtle things that I used to hear back then, which I haven't been hearing for the last few years. So I'm going, yeah, we may be in for a very interesting fall, uh, interesting autumn. Yeah, I think between you and Alex, because we've had Alex on our show. Yep. Great guy. Uh, yep. Yeah, he's awesome. And I think between you and Alex, people like yourselves that are really taking this methodical approach and really trying to get the truth out of something and not just take something as, you know, whatever. Like, oh yeah, it, it happened. Just because we believe it happened, it happened. I like the approach that you guys are kind of taking to it. And Alex is, he's a wild man going out there yeah. in the outdoors and going out into these places that nobody goes just to prove a point and just to make sure this is what's going on out there. It could be this, it could be that, but. that That's because Alex is in his thirties. <laughs> 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 I, I am now in my fifties. When I was in my thirties, I, I was I was very proud to say, yep, I was on, I was on the Lukachukai Mountain Range in the Four Corners area, where I could actually stand on a ninety one hundred foot mountain and go, oh look, that's Colorado, that's New Mexico, and there's Utah, and, and be at that point and see all four states, and be up high and and deal with bear tracks and be out in the woods for two months at a time. 
uh, I've, I've spent like a week on the Blackfoot reservation, uh, Blackfeet reservation. I've spent probably about a month on the Navajo res, a couple of weeks on the Apache res, uh, uh, probably a good month or two in Texas, just out camping in Texas in the, in the, uh, you know, in the Southeast section, which has all the bogs, which lead down to Falk, Arkansas from Oklahoma, you know, through the Eastern part of Texas down to Falk, Arkansas, uh, Alabama. I spent, you know, a, a good month out there investigating sighting reports, uh, even investigated the, uh, lizard man of Bishopville, South Carolina. Uh, that, that latest one occurred back in 2008. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, that, that's youth. <laughs> I wish I could do that right now. Right now, it's like if I was to, uh, I, I recently did a, a like a four or five day expedition a, a couple of years ago down in Kentucky um, where I was in a tent for about four or five days. And yeah, luckily it was nice and easy camping because I, I brought my cot and that saved my back, at least kind of. Um, but yeah, you know, the older you get, the more cranky you get. And, but I'm in a point now where I'm lucky because I can stay up in my research area till two, three o'clock in the morning. And it's only a 45 minute drive home. It's like, okay, I'm True. home in True. my bed. Good night. It's four o'clock in the morning. Good night. I'll see you at 11 in the morning. And that's it. So, I mean, I am at that, that advantageous thing where I don't have to necessarily use my primary research area. It doesn't mean I don't have the gear and ready to go. Uh, I don't know if I would go my, miles in hiking anymore. Um, you know, leave that for the young. I'll stay back. I don't mind being in the base camp, uh, what we call the base camp biatch, <laughs> and hang back. That's what we call incident command now. <laughs> I've never heard of the vocalization like reverberating through your chest. That's something that I've never seen on any documentary. Nobody who's put yeah. anything out. So that's really interesting. I'm actually going through Fayette County, Pennsylvania in a week and a half. So nice. I'm going to be rolling through that area. The uh, Chestnut Ridge area. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that Bigfoot is, we, we get a lot of people that we've talked to, whether it's on this part of the show or just within ourselves or just off air. Do you think that this creature is actually a, a physical creature that's flesh and blood that's living on here or is it a manifestation of a like an extra dimensional thing or even extraterrestrial but what's your thoughts on that well it, that's always the the million dollar question people ask me and I'll, I'll gladly say i i'm a firm believer it's flesh and blood what i've seen was flesh and blood what i've seen leaves tracks and in fact uh, in 2006 i got the four dan cast and uh, it was a uh, 14 and a half inch track by five, almost five inches wide, uh, very huge print. Um, and I actually heard it walking around us from my seven o'clock to my 11 o'clock. And what hit me was this stench. And one would think that if something was intermental, uh, interdimensional, interdimensional or, or, um, say, uh, off a, uh, an alien ship, it wouldn't stink as bad as it does. It wouldn't come off as naked because we, we have to, we have to think in real practical senses. Um, we've never seen it use any complicated tools. We've never seen it use fire. We've never seen it wear any clothing. So even though it may be smart and very perceptive to its surroundings, it doesn't appear to be any smarter than a chimpanzee, uh, you know, a chimpanzee maybe a little bit smarter. 
um, because it can invade. And the only difference is, is it walks upright like us, but its foot structure is much different than us as well. And if it was anything more intelligent that could have the use of using portals or, or, or um, uh, say, extraterrestrial craft, um, one would think it would be wearing some protective clothing uh, because of the environment. We have ticks, fleas, chiggers, mosquitoes, all of which have caused death amongst and, and, and allergies to tons of different animals, uh, you know, on the planet. Um, the other interesting thing, too, is as, as far as being extraterrestrial, I always pose this question to my audiences when I do a, a live thing and that question comes up. I said, if we were to find a sister planet to us, say, one light year away, so it only take a year to get there, and we pop, in, we pop some folks into a capsule, and it has the exact same oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen mixture in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, uh, as Earth. It's identical. Could we fly over there and allow people to walk around without self-contained breathing apparatus. And a lot of people would say, well, yeah, it's got the same makeup. And I'd say, yeah, that, that's true. But that person likely would be dead within anywhere from a day to six months because we do not have the um, immuniza- immunization or the, uh, the, the, the cells in our body to fight off their bacteria or their viruses because they're foreign to us. So they would, uh, their bacteria and viruses would attack our bodies with a vengeance and we would have no, no way to protect ourselves from that. So the answer to that is simply we can't breathe that air because of the bacteria in the air. War of the Worlds. Yeah, hey, exactly. Yeah. And that's another reason why they, when the, the astronauts came back from the moon landing, that's why they put them in quarantine for, for I think, seven or nine days. Because they weren't sure if they brought back bacteria that was foreign to the earth, which could cause, you know, a massive death. If you had to do some sort of ballpark guess about how many cases have you investigated, whether it be field research or just looking into it for two minutes on, on your cell phone or computer and saying, oh, it's BS. Uh, 25 years, probably. uh Probably like 2,500 at least. All right. I mean, you, you're, I'm looking into different, you know, different cases, different videos, different audios, different stories, you know, at least a hundred a year. The number is probably actually going to be higher. That's a very conservative uh, estimate. So I, I hate to backtrack back to the hoaxes, but taking that number into account, that ballpark guess, if you had to say what would be the percentage of hoax to legitimate sighting? Well, I look at it this way. Um, uh, I've never really took it as a If I take everything as a whole, most of it are hoaxes. But if I take the ones that have been reported to me personally, because now they're making that interpersonal connection as opposed to just putting a video out there. Because when I started this, social media was not a thing. Mm-hmm. So hoaxes were very few and far between. They were there, but... They, you know, they weren't perpetrated on a grand scale they are today because social media has kind of made the hoax explosion happen. And now with AI, even more. Um, but uh, the ones that are personally reported to me, I probably had about four or five different hoaxers over the years try to sell me a, a bill of goods that was complete. I mean, I had one guy who, who sits there in my hall of shame on my webpage, page uh, where you you 
sit there, and there's actually a video of me on my, my channel of me saying, and this happened almost 10 years ago, maybe even long, well, within 10 years, where um, I'm on the phone and uh, I, I'm on the way to Stockman. I told my, my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, pull over. I said, look at this. I said, he just told me he got this office trail camera and he'd been selling me this, this cockamamie story, which I, I didn't halfway believe anyway, because it was just too grandiose. He was hmm. trying to say he was part of a special team that, you know, took these things, you know, that, that there's teams or he belonged to the government and somehow he was a CB, but he was an armed CB. And, uh, you know, there's teams that, that, that go out and look for these creatures and, and, and you know, hauls them off. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, and, uh, finally one day he, 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 he jumps the shark and a lot of hoaxers will jump the shark. They'll put a piece of evidence out there, which is so blatantly false. And everybody's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Now we're done with you. Um, and he did, he sent me this picture and it was a, a cell phone picture that had been put out a couple of years earlier by this woman, Olympia Washington, that was just a kid in a hoodie. Actually, it turned out that that it turned out to be a hoax too. And the reason why she finally admitted to that was because she was getting so many inquiries. Oh, I, I didn't want this kind of attention. Well, why'd you put it on YouTube? Why'd you put it yeah. on Facebook? You know, you wanted the attention. You wanted to be famous, but now people are questioning you on it. Now you, you don't want anything to do with it. I don't buy that. Can't handle the 1700 DMS a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks so bad though. Cause it takes away from the legitimacy of it. It waters it down the actual evidence and makes, you know, lives harder for, or the jobs harder for people like you and other researchers. Oh, I, I don't even worry. I, I don't even worry about me because to me, you know, busting a hoax is just as good as finding a, a, a good, a good solid case. Because to me, it's about the investigation. It's not necessarily about proving my job as an investigator is to collect the evidence and give it to science. And it's science's job to prove whether it's real or not. Not mine. I can't do that. I'm not a scientist. Unless I'm sitting there driving down the Adirondacks one day and Oops. <laughs> now I can prove it. But, um, but uh, you know, the, what, who I feel sorry for is not the researchers. I feel sorry for the legitimate witnesses. Uh, they're the ones who are really being cheated. They're the victims in all this, really. They're, they're, they're the ones who have seen something they can't explain. They didn't ask for it. Every researcher that's in the field right now is asked to be here, is, is there of their own volition. They weren't forced into this. Right. Regardless of if they were inspired by having their own, you know, having a sighting and then getting involved, it's their own volition of being in this. But the witnesses, they're the ones that never asked to be in this. And they just went one day, oh, there it is. And now you have these jokers, you know, making fun of it or, you know, telling these hoaxes, watering it down, making it look like a big hoax. And the people that really saw that didn't ask to see it, you know, they're stuck with this now. And it hurts their validation and it makes them feel like I don't want to talk about it because people think I'm crazy, you know, and, and that's the, you know, it, it, it's rough. It's rough on them. I don't worry about me. It's super strange that we have such a stigma on that when we can understand that there's all these things that are not explored on this planet and the deep woods. I mean, just upstate New York, you know, any part parts of New England, it, it's just deep. Even True. areas that I grew up in Connecticut that are very deep wooded, there's still stuff that you're just like yeah. walking out there. Is... Well, you have the, the Bridgewater Triangle and all the mm -hmm. high strangers there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's kind of funny. I talk about that. I talked earlier about that ranger and I, I went up to the ranger. And I was like, you know, uh, you, you probably think this is all crazy. He's like, oh, no. 
no, not at all. Uh, he goes, there, there's, there's parts of these, you know, these forests that nobody's walked in 200 years. So anything can be out there. I was kind of taken aback by that. And then he looks and he goes, yeah, but that guy behind you, he's an asshole, <laughs> which kind of made me laugh. <clears throat> it was an NCON scientist pulling up behind us. So uh, he's like, yeah, that guy. So I didn't even bother talking to that guy because the, the ranger already had, don't, don't even bother talking. Gave you the heads up. Yeah. So you're talking to park rangers and stuff. One thing that I'm really interested in, do you think there's any correlation with the missing 411 phenomenon in Bigfoot? Because we've no. talked about that in, no? Okay. And the reason being is, is if you study primate studies, I mean, is there maybe one or two cases of where a person was assaulted or even killed by a Bigfoot? Absolutely. It's possible. But um, primates of one species rarely attack primates of other species with the exception of a few cultural differences. That's why it's our gut reaction to see a poached gorilla on TV and feel horrible about it, right? That's why none of us say, hey, you want to go out for a monkey leg tonight? No, yeah, right? But there are, like I said, there are cultural differences. There are some tribes in Africa that will hunt monkeys to eat or monkey brains. There are some chimpanzees that will hunt monkeys, but it's a rarity. It's the exception, not the rule. And the, what science has discovered is one species of macaque will go through another species of macaque's territory. And although the, the macaques all will puff up and, and, and display like the gorillas did to Diane Fossey, you know, the bluff, with the bluff charge, they'll all posture and pose and chatter and get mad. And the other ones will pass through, but they won't attack them. But if it was the same species, they would start pushing each other, scuffling, fighting. I mean, think about, you know, humanity and the wars we brought on upon ourselves. Right. But, you know, we, we never declared war on the gorillas or the chimpanzees. In fact, we didn't really hunt those guys through extinction. Now, the poachers in Africa, uh, yeah, that, that's a whole nother, again, that's a cultural thing. Um, because a lot of us wouldn't go out and poach a bunch of gorillas for, you know, whatever kind of, uh, for their hands, you know, they cut off their hands and use them as trophies. Um, in fact, I don't even know why they would even poach a gorilla, except for just stupidity. But the... Um, you know, it's uh, so I don't really tie in a lot of the missing 411 stuff um, as an investigator looking at that that type of stuff. A lot of that stuff can be explained by hypothermia and natural circumstance. Um, there was a guy uh, not too far from me uh, near Lily Pond in uh, Warren County, New York, who went missing, who was uh, and I forget his name. His name escapes me, but he was featured on missing 411. And, you know, they, you know, they say, well, they never found his rifle and all this other stuff. And. You know, they dredged the river. They couldn't find him. But, you know, he was an old guy. He could have, you know, got lost and went miles off course and then dropped dead of a heart attack or hypothermia and stuff like that. And everybody's looking in the wrong way. You know, uh, look how long it took him to find a 747 that dumped in the ocean, uh, that, that jet that went down where the pilot put it in the water. It took him, you know, what, a good year to find that. And they had telemetry on that for most of the time. So, you know, uh, it's, uh, I, I look at Occam's razor is that have Bigfoot been sighted in the Lily Pond area? Yes, they have, but they've never been aggressive. They're fleeting sightings. A lot of them, 
what, why are we putting one and one, you know, why are we trying to put that mystery into that mystery? Definitely understandable. As we approach the one hour mark, we're going to start to close out the episode. So now would be your time to promote yourself, tell our listeners where they can find you. Any last words you might have for the listeners, the stage is yours, Steve. Sure. And I always say this, I, I live by five tenants and that's keep an open mind, but keep reality alive. We have a responsibility to educate and education means we also expose the junk science and charlatans. And that's my, my kind of my mission statement. And we're stuck there right in the middle of those uh, five tenants. Tenant number three is always tell the truth. It doesn't matter whatever outcome it is. It is what it is, what it is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, people can find me at squatchdetective.com, which is my website. Uh, but I, I'm mostly active on Squatch T, uh, squatchdtv.com. Uh, that goes right to our YouTube channel page and, uh, we do live podcast Sunday night, 9 PM Eastern and uh two hour show. Usually, um, sometimes I have to cut it short cause I'm not, somebody's not feeling well, or it's kind of slowing up. I don't try to drag it on to make it longer than what it needs to be, but people can find me there. Um, you can find my contacts there as well. Uh, I've gotten three books out there. Again, you can find those on the website and, uh, promoted, uh, on the, uh, channel as well. So. But uh, thank you guys for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, spending time with us. We were thrilled to have you come on. Much appreciated, Steve. All right, Hushlings, we will have all of Steve's links and information in the show notes. As always, we appreciate you stopping by for another Declassified Discussions. I am Mystery Mike. I am Declassified Dave. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders.